Hello, everyone, and good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Today is Monday, November 22nd, and I'm really happy to be with you today to talk about evaluating claims for exposure in New Jersey. I'm very thankful that you're here today. Uh, I just want to give you a quick hello from me. Um, thanks for jumping in. Um, uh, this is totally live. I am on vacation, and um, uh, that's why the background's a little different. And as you can see, I'm ready to head down to the beach uh, and the pool. So uh, please feel free to write in any of your questions. I can see them pop up uh, on my screen here, and we're going to um, answer as many questions as I, as I can at the end. So uh, please bring your questions. It'll make it so much more fun. And that's the point of doing a live webinar, even when you're on vacation. So here we go. Uh, first, let's talk about evaluating claims for exposure. And my the point of this webinar is really to talk to you about what the best practices are. You know, uh, so often, uh, particularly when we take over files from other that have been handled by other defense counsel, I'm kind of surprised about how exposure analysis are kind of done randomly or not at all, or sometimes only when the risk professional or adjuster asks for one. And that stuff drives me crazy because you should know um, when we're doing it, uh, it should be very clear. There should be very specific milestones in the case, in my opinion, where you're getting exposure analysis from counsel. And you should be a little bit familiar with exactly how we're doing it. And particularly in a state like New Jersey, which doesn't use uh, for example, the AMA guides to disability or have impairment rating or disability determination schedules or guides, it's really a rule of thumb uh, state. So how is exposure actually estimated? And what kind of factors do we actually consider when we're giving you one of our exposure analysis? So I really wanna go through these things and then answer any questions you have. Um, you can type in questions while I'm talking and I'll see them pop up. And at the end, I will answer as many questions as I can. All right, so let's begin, let's dive in. The first thing we're gonna talk about is when you should know your exposures, and then we're gonna talk about how we actually do it. So my opinion, uh, it's too late. It's too late if it, you've already got IME reports and we're already at the end of the case and it's our expert versus their expert. And you know we've, we're using our uh, uh, de uh, defense medical examination to discuss what our impairment rating is versus theirs. And you know in New Jersey, the impairment ratings are always very, 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 very far apart. You know, it's really rare to get a defense medical examination that finds more than a 15 or 17 and a half percent disability ever. Meanwhile, the petitioner's experts and, you know, there's some particular mills that they're all going to are always finding at least a 20% from them is zero, essentially. A 20% is you are healthy enough to run the uh, a marathon in the Olympics and uh, you know perform and get a gold medal. You'd have a 20% uh, disability. So count that as zero. But you know we really see they're having much higher uh, uh, findings in regards to impairment. And so you know I really think if it's at the end of the case, you know the petitioners already reached MMI. Both parties have obtained their own uh, permanency evaluations. It's way too late. And typically in this in this state too. Uh, it is not going to ever be the treating physician who is going to give you the permanency or impairment rating. It's always going to be an expert hired by the petitioner or their attorney. And the reason for that is, of course, in this state, we are controlling and directing medical care. And so it is up to us to send the petitioner to a physician. And generally speaking, they're not going to come in on permanency because they've put the person at MMI and sent them back to work. So it's going to be relatively rare that you'd see that coming from a treating physician. More typically, uh, it's going to be from their own expert. Now, it's too late. Again, if it's at the end of the case, 
that you're exchanging permanency reports and now you're starting to think about what the exposure is. In my opinion, you should be getting an exposure analysis from counsel really right at intake. Our standard here is to draft a legal action plan and budget, which provides a preliminary estimate of exposure. And we send that out in every case within seven days of the new file being referred. Uh, that exposure analysis is sometimes very preliminary. Oftentimes cases are coming in before we have the complete medicals and maybe we don't have all the information we need. And we certainly don't have expert reports, but who cares? We've done this a long time. Uh, you know, for my case, I've done this for 21 years. Uh, my partner, Joe, has done it for 18 years. Uh, my other partner, Karen Vincent, in our Jersey practice, has done it longer than me. And, and so we really have a really good idea and a really good feel for where the exposure is when the case first comes in. Now, of course, during the pendency of the matter, and certainly before maximum medical improvement is reached, medical records are coming in because maybe treatment's ongoing. Well, when those medical records come in as new body parts get uh, uh, treated or taken into the case or get disputed, thrown out of the case, that's going to impact exposure. And we're going to continue to talk about that with you. And we're going to change our evaluation as the case lives along. Um, we're also going to want to give you an estimate of exposure before and after any permanency or examinations for the purpose of determining that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Every time I get a demand from the petitioner, I'm also going to want to give you my analysis. I mean, sometimes we have adversaries who will guess, give us a demand early in the case and maybe even before they have a permanency exam. Again, it's pretty rare and generally a case where we have a pretty strong legal defense. Uh, when we get those kind of demands, we're going to tell you, hey, this is what we think the exposure is. And in general, we're going to be commenting to you about how well we think our, our likelihood of succeeding in the legal defense in the case. So in, particularly in a denied case, we're saying this person wasn't my employee or this didn't happen at work or there's no causal relationship or any other uh, case where there is a controversy. When you get a demand from the petitioner, we're really gonna have to assess for you, hey, what are our chances or the likelihood of us prevailing in this disputed matter? Uh, what are the uh, additional litigation costs involved with us prevailing? And what's a reasonable settlement analysis or settlement exposure value for this case? Uh, oftentimes we'll come back to you and just say, hey, look, this case now has nuisance value. We've got a, a demand of $20,000 pursuant to Section 20. Again, that's a lump sum dismissal. It's really not worth that. Why don't you give us $2,000 and try to get rid of it? Um, exposure can change after a conference with the judge. And certainly if um, meaningful medicals have been exchanged between the parties and the judge has made a commentary about residual disability or where they think the case is going, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity uh, for us to give you an update as to settlement analysis. Finally, uh, before a case can be tried, before you can go before a judge and formally litigate a case, a pretrial memorandum needs to be completed. This used to be called the green sheet because it used to be printed on green paper and left in the courthouse and you could kind of go down to the attorney lounge and pick up a green sheet. Uh, and a pretrial memorandum is both sides laying out all of the proofs that they expect to bring into the trial. And so when we would be preparing a pretrial memorandum, our best practice is always to prepare it before we go into the courthouse and exchange it with our adversary. Now these things are being exchanged via email and they're certainly not in green paper anymore. But when the pretrial memorandums are exchanged, that's an opportunity for us to analyze the proofs they intend to bring into their case and let you know if it impacts our exposure analysis. Now, if there's one thing you can take away from this slide or what I'm trying to talk about in terms of when uh, exposure should be considered, uh, and provided to you by counsel is that that's a lot of times during the case and the and as the case develops, not just at the end and not just when they get their permanency exam. That's 
that's really lazy lawyering in my opinion. It's not really giving you the information as the risk professional or the adjuster that you need to either adequately set reserves or to instruct counsel and say, hey, uh, look, you think the settlement uh, exposure now is only $20,000, why don't you go do that now? Let's not wait for further exams or or additional litigation. That that really is the way to go. So, uh, you know, it really should be pretty frequent that you're hearing from counsel. Now, how do we analyze the exposure in a case? And I'm going to be frank, some injuries, some body parts are really easy. The easiest ones are, are compensable death, right? In a death case, the exposure is 70% of the average weekly wage, of course, subjects to the maximum and minimum rates uh, for the, white, the lifespan, the expected lifespan of the dependent, which is most typically going to be calculated based on the uh, life expectancy of the spouse, right? So if the person's 40 years old uh, who died and you have information about the spouse that, you know, maybe that person was also 40 years old, well, they've got a 38-year life expectancy. It's a simple math problem and it could be very straightforward. And so in a death case, it's really relatively easy to come up with your maximum exposure in those matters. A little more difficult is to attenuate that or to reduce it by the likelihood of the petitioner uh, or the, uh, the, the dependent uh, prevailing at trial or prevailing in hearings. But in general, it's relatively easy to calculate your exposure, and you should be getting very straightforward analysis from uh, your attorneys on that one. Uh, second easiest thing, in my opinion, is scheduled loss of use body parts, right? This are hand, finger, feet, toes, eyes, ears. Uh, these are the body parts in which the schedule of disability has been enumerated. Again, there is no one way that has been published or required for the uh, evaluating physicians to come up with their estimates of permanent residual disability in a scheduled loss of use case in New Jersey. There just is no simple guideline. Uh, certainly, they don't have to, the doctors don't have to file the AMA guidelines. But the case law has developed over the last 100 years that the uh, judge has to rely on objective medical evidence of medical impairment. That evidence can also be the uh, petitioner's own statements regarding their impact on their ability to work or their activities of daily living. However, uh, this is going to be limited by the maximum awards, which are listed on the scheduled loss of use chart. Very straightforward, very simple. Uh, you can go find these published charts anywhere you want. However, I tell clients, don't even bother with the charts. The state of New Jersey has published this really wonderful disability calculator. It's called OSCAR. Uh, in OSCAR, you can see there on the left-hand side of that graphic, you can just plug in the percentage of disability to any of these scheduled body parts. And you can press a button after you put in the average weekly wage, and it will just kick out the right answer. Very simple, very straightforward. And we recommend using Oscar because the judges of compensation who are going to be checking the proposed orders and the settlement documents will also be using Oscar. So even though over the years we've discovered that there are some slight calculation errors involving rounding in Oscar, which can lead to just, just a matter of pennies or maybe even a dollar in the case of some of our, um, our settlements, it uh, doesn't matter. Just use it because everyone's using it, including the judge, and it'll make things straightforward. And it's really not prejudicial to the employer respondent. So Oscar is the way we're going to calculate that scheduled loss of use. And again, uh, in a typical case, your attorney is going to be using their rule of thumb. You shouldn't have to wait until you get expert reports from both parties for your attorney to be evaluating the overall exposure in a case. And by that, I mean 
we've done this long enough that we know the certain body parts and certain injuries are going to be uh, fall within a very specific range, okay? The normal range for each injury type should be on the tip of your attorney's tongue. They should be very straightforward. Most cases are going to fall within that uh, range. Of course, there's going to be a little variance for venue and judge, and I'll talk about that in a future slide. But in general, the injuries all have a sort of accepted value. And it's not, you're not going to find it printed anywhere. There certainly is no guideline that has it, but it's certainly known by the parties. Hey, here's the accepted range for this kind of injury. The other interesting thing about this jurisdiction is that the judges do look at the underlying medicals. And by that, I mean, in some jurisdictions, the, the judge will just say, here's what your expert says, here's what the expert says, you know, split it down the middle or however they're going to calculate what the overall exposure or the overall settlement's going to be. Here, you'll have judges who will actually look at the underlying medicals. And so if you have a case where the claimant's coming in and saying, judge, I've got a knee injury and it's worth 30% of the statutory leg. And you can say to the judge, look, judge, this person had a very simple, straightforward meniscal repair. It was done arthroscopically. They had five weeks of follow-up physical therapy. They've returned to full-time, full-duty work. And you can see the medical records that say that. The judge will agree with you and say, you know what? These underlying medicals do not support 30% disability of the statutory leg. But it does support a disability of 22 and a half, let's say to 25% of the statutory leg, which is kind of the going rate for an operated, uh, you know, meniscal repair in New Jersey right now. And what I mean to, to sort of uh, give you insight into is the fact that if you have strong medical that demonstrates um, the person's recovery and their ability to return to work, and the treatment course is not too significant or doesn't, it's not extraordinary in any way, you can really expect the judges typically to approve a settlement or award a judgment, uh, which is very much in keeping with our rules of thumb. The opposite is also true though, which is if your underlying medicals demonstrate that the person did have a meniscal tear, but it took three different surgeries to repair it, and they had a very convoluted treatment course and et cetera, et cetera, you can expect the judge would be adding additional amounts of permanent impairment onto the findings of the evaluating physician. So just be just be mindful of the fact that the judges are quite conscientious. They do get involved in both settlements uh, and certainly with judgments and awards, and they will take a look uh, at the um, type of treatment that happened in your case. And again, that's very different from other states that we practice in where the judge of compensation will typically just approve any settlement that's put before them, uh, won't be too interested in what the underlying medicals say. That You're gonna have the opposite experience in New Jersey. All right. The other type of disability that's typically going to be compensated is permanent partial disability, um, back injury, neck injury, thoracic spine injury. Shoulders uh, are not arms in New Jersey. They are considered permanent partial disability body parts. Same things with hips and pelvises. Other states, they typically would include a, a shoulder injury or a hip injury and a leg uh, schedule. Any neurological injury, any psychiatric illness, you know, you're also going to look more rarely at things like respiratory injuries, any injuries that involve a system or a process or have a condition associated with it rather than a specific enumerated body part. Now, again, uh, we're going to go over to Oscar to take the evaluations of the, tr of the uh, two expert physicians. Typically, there'll be an expert physician on the behalf of the petitioner and there'll be an expert physician on behalf of the respondent. And, you know, you could plug those uh, into Oscar and again, uh, come up with exactly what the dollar values are. There's a more convoluted way of calculating exposure using math problems and formulas and charts. No one uses it anymore. I absolutely instruct all my clients that we should be using Oscar to calculate our unscheduled uh, permanent partial disability loss of, uh, sorry, <laughs> permanent partial disability awards. All right. 
A permanent partial disability award and a schedule loss of use award can be reduced by the amount of any pre-existing disability we can show. And that pre-existing disability does not have to be related to a prior workers' compensation claim. So unlike other states where the uh, injury has to be occupational uh, or have a uh, impact on the person's working ability, in New Jersey, any pre-existing disability to the same body part or parts uh, or uh, 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 system would all be a credit against your exposure. And so that should always be considered. In fact, it's an, a very important part of our research in the initial take, uh, in, uh, uh, phase of a case to make sure that we're uh, discovering if there's any prior injuries to the same body part. Next, voluntary tenders will certainly be a dollar for dollar offset. Voluntary tenders also used to be a dollar for dollar offset for attorney's fees, but that is no longer the case. Um, any money that you get back in New Jersey from a Section 40 lien, and that is the section of the statute that allows for both subrogation and reimbursement from the proceeds of any third-party awards, uh, would serve to reduce your overall exposure. New Jersey also has a stacking uh, uh, system in place or scheme in place where multiple body parts are not compensated separately. Instead, you take all of the weeks of compensation available for each body part and stack them on top of each other. And what this really means is that when a person has many minor injuries to multiple parts of their body, maybe hands, maybe feet, with also toes and ankles involved and maybe a slight elbow injury, all of those weeks are, are added together or stacked is our term here. And it really leads to a much higher award than would be simply summing up all of the very small, perhaps, awards for the uh, individual body parts. So that's something to be mindful of in this jurisdiction. And the last thing, the other factor that impacts us is that in a total disability case, there is a contribution available from the second injury fund. If the petitioner had any pre-total injury or accident which impacted their ability to work. And really what this means is that in the case of a total disability claim, you're going to look back through this entire person's work history and look for any condition, whether it's work-related or not, uh, which impacted their ability to work. And you will then make an assertion that the second injury fund is liable for contribution to that amount. And that contribution can be very dramatic and significantly reduce your exposure. In fact, we do an entire presentation in this webinar series on how contribution from the second injury fund can significantly reduce your exposure in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. The last factor I'm gonna talk about is the factor of geography. You know, New Jersey is not one state, it's really two states. It's really North Jersey and South Jersey. I know sometimes people talk about this place I've never heard of before called Central Jersey, but it doesn't really exist. New Jersey sort of split down the middle and it's really split along the lines of the Raritan River into North Jersey and South Jersey. And they're very different states. North Jersey people watch New York City TV. Um, they usually root for the Giants or the Jets uh, or the Yankees or the Mets. Okay, they're, they're North Jersey people. They're really closely associated with New York City. South Jersey people uh, are watching Philadelphia TV channels, are, are rooting for Philadelphia Eagles on the football side and the Phillies on the, on the baseball side. And it's really kind of a different uh, state. We have discovered, and I, I've really seen this trend over the last 20 years uh, remain very, very prevalent and very, very obvious that settlements and exposures in south and southern part of the state are just generally higher than they are in the northern part of the state. 
And particularly when you get close to Atlantic City, the closer you get to Atlantic City, the higher the cases are worth. And there's really just a very long uh, cultural tradition in New Jersey where uh, Atlantic County has really always had very high settlements and really kind of preyed upon uh, employers. That's just how it is. Um, and we tell clients that, look, when we're evaluating exposure throughout the state of New Jersey, we're generally going to take into account what the what the venue that the case is listed in, so which uh, South Jersey court is listed in, and who our adversary is, and how predacious they are. Um, you will see in South Jersey that there are just, generally speaking, more motions for med and temp filed, higher attorney's fees awarded, and settlements just go for just slightly more. And so for that reason, we do take that kind of stuff into consideration when we're giving you an overall settlement analysis. All right. I've told you a lot of information and I just want to jump in here and see if there are any questions um, uh, that that are popping up on this topic of exposure in New Jersey. If anybody has any questions, now is the time to top to type them in. I definitely want to see what you guys uh, are looking at and, and what kind of considerations you have in your workers' comp case. Um, anybody, I don't see any typed in yet. The only thing I have here is I see Lauren. Uh, my practice manager saying, Greg, what kind of god-awful uh, jacket, shirt, compensation, <laughs> combination are you wearing and why are you doing that? I'm on vacation, Lauren. Okay, I'm just, I'm happy to be here. Um, all right. Nope, I don't see any questions popping up. That's good. Thanks, everybody. Uh, here's the deal. Next month, uh, we're going to be talking about reimbursement and Section 40 liens. So please jump in for that. And uh, if anybody has any other questions, please email them to me. All right. Have a great week and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye.